Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the Bookshop Podcast. Left Bank Books is the oldest and largest independently owned full-line bookstore in St. Louis, Missouri. They offer a full line of new and used books, gifts, cards, magazines, toys, and services. The staff at Left Bank Books are a fiercely committed group. Many are writers, performers, and artists and personally appreciate the importance of a store like Left Bank, not only to the cultural health of the community, but to the health of its creative people. Today, I'm speaking with co-owner Chris Kleindienst. Hi, Chris, and welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Well, you are somewhat of an icon in the indie bookshop world. So let's begin with the history of Left Bank Books and your place in it. Sure. Um, Left Bank Books started in 1969. It was a group of graduate students at Washington University here in St. Louis who were all activists in anti-war activities and civil rights and other kind of social justice issues. They wanted a store where people could find things that you couldn't find elsewhere. You know, in 69, there was no internet. What was printed was printed and who chose to make it available in their communities. That's what you had access to. So they um, had no money to put behind this. Uh, They did what they could and opened a little store and um, ran it collectively. Progressive literature, mimeographed position papers, um, lots of stuff like that, but also the, the stuff that was really edgy at that time, for example, that you couldn't find elsewhere in St. Louis were things like the Rolling Stone um, newspaper and um, something called the Whole Earth Catalog, which was kind of a Google for the counterculture. So about five years in, I um, came to the store. I knew the people. I, I felt I feel like I'm kind of a younger sister to them uh, in, the, in the local activism community. I was in high school coming of age and they did things that I got involved with. They organized, you know, the youth, that would be me. And uh, anyway, I needed a job and I went to the store to look for a job. And it turned out that they were hiring kind of for the first time because they had all kind of moved away. There was only one person left in the collective who was still running the store and they needed an employee. So, I was hired as that, as an employee. And 47 years later, uh, I am still here. And in looking back, what did you bring to the store? Well, I definitely brought queer to the store. There was a small women's studies section, which I immediately expanded. But I also immediately said, well, where are the gay books? And I set about ordering the gay books or somehow doing that. I don't really remember how, because all I really was, was a sales clerk behind the register. Yet, because of me, the mix of books changed uh, pretty much immediately. And do you remember the names of some of the authors you brought into the store at that time? Yeah. So in terms of lesbian fiction, it was really at the very beginning. and And not too many years in, the, in fact, really right when I came there, there was beginning to be this amazing collection and sort of a loose organization of feminist 
publishers and women's presses where a lot of the lesbian books came from at that point. And that would have been around the time of Rita Mae Brown's book, right? Yes. Legendary uh, coming-of-age novel, Ruby Fruit Jungle, was initially published by one of those presses called Daughter's Press, and later was picked up by um, Bantam Books, which was a mainstream publishing company. And the big deal of that was not only was it lesbian fiction being published by a mainstream publisher, but it was published for the first time in paperback first, like the whole tradition of a novel coming out in hardcover and then coming out in paperback was circumvented. They were experimenting with a new model. Mm. However, the big deal was really that they noticed there was a market, you know, my community (laughs) was a market that they hadn't explored before. And this most likely allowed for better distribution. Yes, absolutely. And I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about the city of St. Louis, Missouri, your community, the history, geography, culture, arts, the diversity, anything you'd like to share. Yes, uh, uh, docent for St. Louis. Um, (laughs) Well, we are on land that was land of an ancient Mississippian indigenous civilization, the Mound Builders, which was a center of uh, culture and commerce in its day that stretched into two continents, far into South America and up to um, here. And and later, that culture disappeared. And and, uh, when the French fur traders came along, it was uh, essentially uh, the indigenous people here were Osage. And all of the things that we know about America happened here in terms of imperialism and colonialism. And it bounced back and forth between the French and the Spanish for a bit and landed on the French until... um, the United States bought the Louisiana Purchase. So that's what we were, a territory, a French territory. And from there, you know, there was the Lewis and Clark expedition to go find out if there was water passage to the Pacific. And uh, so that's kind of like mini fast ancient history. Um, so, so 1764, we were officially a city. That was a good history lesson. And do you know what the population of St. Louis is? You know, we're about, the greater metro area is about 3 million people. The city itself is a fraction of that, but it's, it all looks like a city. It's, you know, all connected. And our bookstore is located in the city and we're in a, we call it a turn of the century neighborhood, but that means, um, 1800s to 1900s. Uh, The building we're in was um, built in 1904. It's kind of where the World's Fair of the time that we were right down the street from where that it was and that our neighborhood kind of grew up at that time. So really beautiful old brick buildings. Pretty much St. Louis is known for its brick being on the Mississippi River and the confluence with the Missouri River. There's uh, that's the building material, and there's just some amazing architecture here. People who come here for the first time, that's the first thing they talk about is the incredible brick architecture. 
We are about, um, currently the city itself is approximately evenly divided between African-American and white people with a smaller percentage being kind of everything else. A unique kind of surprising thing about us is that we have become home to the largest Bosnian population outside of their homeland of anywhere in the world. So we do have a big immigrant and refugee resettlement project in St. Louis. So we see in certain neighborhoods, um, actually pretty close to where I live, a lot of very international feeling vibe. And uh, I personally feel it also as I'm, I'm mindful of people aren't necessarily here for joyful reasons. And they have a lot of trauma that they carry with them. And what I hope is that they will find an open and welcoming home here. Yeah. But we're also known for being a really big arts and culture place. We have our sports. People love baseball here. We have our team, the Cardinals. Uh, but we also have a world-class symphony, an amazing art museum, incredible galleries, art galleries, lots of other music. We are one of the best places to see really great jazz and blues or listen, I should say. And there is a lot of culture uh, of all sorts going on here. There's a strong theater community, parks. We have an amazing park system. Our Forest Park, which was the site of the, that 1902 World's Fair, rivals Central Park in New York for its, its size and, and its grandeur. And do they still have any of the original buildings from that World's Fair? There is a pavilion. There is the art museum and the, um, I forget the, the formal word for how it sort of, it's on a hill and it comes down into a huge kind of reflecting pond. Um, and that is substantially original. The rest of it has pretty changed over. <laughs> our zoo is there, our art museum, as I mentioned, our historical society. Chris, you're a good docent. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so we're going to switch over from docent to author-editor because you were also the author-editor of This Is What Lesbian Looks Like, Dyke Activist Take on the 21st Century, a collection of essays by activists published in 1999 by Firebrand Books. Have you considered another collection? And how would the narratives be the same and different? 22 years later. A lot has changed, and it definitely is 22 years later. Who could have predicted anything that's happened since? So interestingly, I haven't considered doing another collection. First, I'd like to retrieve uh, my rights to this collection. The, the press was sold shortly after I published it, and I guess the woman who took it on didn't understand what she was taking on. I, I have no idea because she sort of fell off the map and lots of her authors had to scramble. One that is probably best known is Alison Bechtel, whose graphic memoir, Fun Home, was made into an actual successful musical. Uh, but her, what she was known for initially was her amazing comics series, in air quotes, uh, called Dykes to Watch Out For, uh, which really chronicled that 
sort of lesbian culture of that time, as well as um, if people know Doonesbury, you know, Gary Trudeau's Doonesbury, it was really right on a par with that kind of brilliance and maybe even more so. So she, all of those books, uh, her work is so important. And, and she was definitely by far the best known and best selling of the Daughters Press or Firebrand, sorry, line. So she managed to get herself out. I just let my book sort of sit on the shelves in the warehouses until it doesn't seem to be there anymore when you try to order it. And <laughs> I can't find her. I'll find her eventually. So that was a long-winded way of saying what I would like to do if I had world enough and time is revisit the people in the book who are still with us and kind of maybe resolicit, uh, reflect I think a lot of amazing work has come since then. Yeah. The reason I collected uh, those authors, those activists originally is that I really wanted there to be a book that was accessible to anyone in any place in their coming out, in their sense of being involved in activist stuff or not, and that they could feel like they belonged, that this tent was big. They belonged wherever they were at in their journey was perfectly valid. And I think that book still does that. Of course, our language has changed quite a bit and our understanding of things, intersectional issues is, has deepened and broadened quite a bit since then. So if I had the time to spend on it, I think I'd start there, just going back to the beginning. I like that concept. You have to get those rights back, Chris. Yes, <laughs> it's a matter of, just writing a couple of letters, you know, it's just, I have a day job though, and it keeps getting in the way. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And I'm sure many of my listeners can relate, but we still have a lot of work to do. When I look back at the previous administration and all the steps backwards we seem to take in so many areas of social justice and civil rights, let alone the climate crisis, I think it felt like during those four years, we were in survival mode, trying to be heard. And then with the switch of administration, we're still wanting to be heard. We have so much work to be done now. And we're still in this pandemic, which I think we're going to be in for quite a few years. So it's even more important that writers and artists and creatives, dancers, musicians find ways to help these movements progress. Yes. Well, and it's, we're still, you know, reeling from kind of the aftershocks because the um, transgender youth of all people. I mean, could you find a, a more vulnerable group of people than transgender kids and are being legislated against as we speak, which is it just, it's horrendous. And I think, you know, that's the thing is that we've spent four years having to kind of just defend and react and respond. We've been attacked so aggressively that as a whole, like all the kind of, you know, um, marginalized communities uh, that, um, as you say, it's like we, we were no, we had to pause being proactive because all we could do is basically try to defend our lives. To survive. Yeah. In episode 39, I interviewed Joe Ivester. She is an author who focuses on LGBTQ and civil rights. She has written a family memoir titled Once a Girl, Always a Boy. 
And she was explaining that she is out there every day. She lives in Austin, Texas, advocating for her son's rights and for kids in schools to be able to use the bathroom of their choice. It's, it's ridiculous because, you know, it's as long as they can keep pointing the finger at really vulnerable populations that mainstream folks are not likely to understand and or, you know, there's so many different communities, uh, point a finger at black people, point a finger at transgender people, at queer people overall. Um, so that attention is diverted while they steal us blind and destroy the planet. Um, that's, you know, it's that's what is happening. Yeah, sometimes it feels like we're playing a game of chess. We make a move in the right direction for a social cause and then bam, a peace guarding climate change is knocked out. It's just never ending and it is exhausting. Indeed. Okay, so back to books. And I thought this was charming, this quote. It was from a Kirkus interview you did in 2014. And you said, quote, a possible trend I'd like to see go away is the Skype type author events that I am being offered. I think these come across as a little bit lame, like I am trying to sell the customers on a sideshow attraction, end quote. And here we are, Chris. Yes, here we are. Uh, here we are. We never thought, right? So how was the transition from live in-house events to virtual events and to selling online? And do you see Left Bank Books encompassing a hybrid version of events in our post-pandemic future? So our transition from in-person events to virtual events was instantaneous because we had um, an event scheduled for about three days after uh, the shutdown in, in St. Louis, at least. And um, we were able to go into our store and process online orders. We never had to completely stop doing business. We were, we were able to figure that out and do it safely. And it was allowed. In the meantime, oh my gosh, what about all these events? Well, uh, we were one of the very first stores in the country um, not to just cancel an event, but to say we can do it, you know, I think we did it on Zoom initially, but now we're on another platform. Learned a lot of new terminology. That's one thing that happened. <laughs> so what was good about it in this context is that there was literally no other way to connect with people except virtually, you know, every across the world, really. So everything was unavailable to people. And here was this thing that we could do where you could see someone, you know, like a meaningful conversation occur between people, um, your favorite authors, authors you maybe hadn't discovered yet, but you could sort of turn this on and see something unique, see, you know, your local bookstore do it. So, and, and possibly a, another local person involved, either an author or just someone in conversation, you know, with that author. And gradually it got to be even more um, interesting because as everybody kind of settled in, publishers and authors included, uh, the, the pairings of people got more creative. And it was the kind of thing that you couldn't do if you were trying to organize travel schedules. So 
uh, we got to have amazing collections of people in the virtual room at the same time that will never happen in person um, in St. Louis for sure. So that in a way really was a good thing as part of like what we do as a bookstore, which is to create and support community. This was a little way that we could do it. And of course there's the Q and A part. I don't even remember what the technology was like in 2014. I'm sure it was there, but it wasn't something that was available to all of us at the touch of a button. Yeah, right. And you couldn't manage, you know, I don't think managing like an audience and having like a Q&A part and a raise your hand part, and you know, all of that. I think that it, it got pretty creative and in that way, it has been good. The sales of books are infinitesimal compared to what they are for in-person events. So our costs to do business went up and our return on the effort of organizing these events went down, but we did not stop. We haven't said no, unless there was some other reason to say no, but we're doing it. And I think for the future that as we, if we ever emerge, from a COVID crisis, it will probably be at least for a while, uh, some events will be hybrid events. There's one that we might be doing in the fall in person. And there's some thought that more people would want to attend than fit in the space, but the space has the capacity to do streaming. So we might be able to experiment with a hybrid event. Mm. All of this kind of makes me want to take a really long nap, but (laughs) (laughs) it's very exhausting. I just want to read books and talk about books with people who love books. All of this like airline pilot level of knowledge base. (laughs) It's really exhausting. So we will connect with people and we will figure out ways for authors to get as much interaction with their fans as possible. And hopefully one day we'll be back to um, a lower tech, more human scale operation again. Well, it's something positive to look forward to. Now, Chris, here's your soapbox. What would you say to readers who are addicted to purchasing books from Amazon to encourage them instead to buy from their local indie bookshop? Well, I would say that, first of all, people who are addicted to buying their books on Amazon, it's a pretty ingrained habit. So you you have habits of ease and comfort and familiarity going on here. However, the same problems with Amazon are still there and have just gotten worse over the years. They um, do not support the local economy whatsoever. They don't create jobs in communities. They go in, they actually cause more jobs to go away than they bring. The jobs they bring, I think has been abundantly um, demonstrated are sweatshop jobs, literally. And so wherever they have a warehouse, they just contribute even more so to the degradation of the quality of life. They do not uh, contribute to the tax base. They do not involve themselves in the community they're in. They're not accountable. They don't care whether the schools are good because they don't send their kids there, you know. So have a change. You know what? 
if the habit is buying online, the good news is that uh, independent bookstores are also have very robust e-commerce websites with the added aspect that if you do have a problem or a question, you can actually talk to a human and um, have a relationship with a human every time you might need to interact. The If you're looking to save a buck, it's a penny-wise and pound-foolish proposition. doesn't benefit the authors. It doesn't benefit your community. And in the long run, really doesn't benefit you. And I'd add also that because of the discounts on Amazon, it's not really helping the authors in the long run either. The thing that probably folks don't know or don't remember is that Jeff Bezos got into the business of Amazon by the trial balloon was my industry was book selling. It's like, well, books, you know, they don't spoil, they're small, they're easy to ship. I will experiment with books. And he also experimented with pricing. He also lost money for ever because he was selling below cost and destabilized our um, publishing and book selling industry pretty much um, it would seem like forever at this point. It, it really twisted things around. Overall, it led to publishers making decisions that um, decreased the diversity of what they published, uh, definitely decreased what they paid to authors overall. So, uh, you know, that it, there's sort of like these things that people don't see, the invisible consequences, but he still screwed around and with the pricing. So he got people in to buying from him by using us as a loss leader. And he still manipulates those prices. You and I could probably look up the same book on that website and see a different price at the same time. And meanwhile, he charges whatever he wants for everything else. And the, and the prices overall, it's just more expensive, really, than it looks. So that's my soapbox. And I do want to remind listeners to, if it's an audio book or an ebook that you want to purchase, check with your local indie bookshop before you purchase that ebook or audio book from Amazon. Does Left Bank Books offer audio and ebooks, Chris? We do. In episode 48 of the podcast, I interviewed the manager of Pages of Hackney. Her name is Joe Haygate, and she hand delivered books in the area on her bicycle. And I think that kind of service is hard to beat. And speaking of service, apart from a well-curated selection of books, indie bookshops pride themselves on their booksellers, hand-selling books one book at a time. So who are some of the booksellers at Left Bank Books? My booksellers are some really fabulous, super smart people who are interested in surprising and wonderful things. There's, uh, right now, I would say our... our uh, Science fiction and fantasy has, uh, that area has just exploded for us. And several people on our staff are fans of particular authors in that genre, which is a wide ranging, you know, genre and can speak passionately for hours on any aspect of those books. If you venture in, (laughs) we have a wonderful kid's children and teens specialist, shall we say. He does the buying. He's our storyteller. He handles the, manages the whole section and even um, sets things up with authors in schools. You'll never get a better person than this fabulous single dad to steer you through kids' books. 
just so genuine and um, wonderful. Overall, we are a really diverse, racially diverse, gender diverse, gender identity diverse crowd. We're all way overqualified for what we do, but there's a lot of enthusiasm there. It sounds like you have a fabulous group of booksellers. We do. We do. I'm so proud of them. And do you sell more nonfiction or fiction? And in fiction, what is your strongest selling genre? I didn't have a chance to run the current numbers uh, before we spoke, but I would say we sell more fiction just because there's so many, you know, there's, there's the general fiction, there's mysteries, there's romance, there's this burgeoning, you know, sci-fi, and then the young adult fiction is another area that's just exploded. And I don't even know why to call it young adult because so many technically adults shop it for themselves. The, the, the quality of the writing and the complexity of stories, it just has really matured. So if you add all that up, I would say fiction is winning. <laughs> but then if, if you look at our nonfiction and you look at like maybe this last holiday season where the three or four hands-down runaway best-selling books were nonfiction, such as Obama's Promised Land. And um, it's like, <laughs> it skews the numbers. But in a normal normal time. I would say fiction's edging out on. And is there one book you'd like to see more people reading? That kind of question always throws me into a distress because I'm one of these people who is a very undisciplined reader, a very eclectic reader who like, I can get super passionate about the most ridiculous mystery, but then I can get very passionate about um, a book about the uh, origins of um, militarized policing. So how do I narrow it down? It's so hard for me. But I decided I would uh, talk about uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Because, you know, this book, the subtitle is Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. So Robin Wall Kimmerer herself is Native American and also a poet and also a botanist. So those three pieces bring really interesting um, experience and, uh, you know, like scientific discipline. And this is the most remarkable, hopeful, comforting book. And that's why I wanted to share it, because I knew a lot of what we would probably talk about would sound very serious and everything is um, hard. And is there any hope? Well, there is hope. Uh, We are very resilient Human beings are very resilient. And this book is a wonderful example of how really ancient indigenous cultures, if we look at how they organized themselves, their um, principles of life affirming, you know, the planet um, and economic uh, systems that she calls based on reciprocity and how their solutions you know, for what we think we have no solutions for, the racism and economic inequality and global warming, the answers are right here and they've been here all the time. And it's just so, it's just a personal yet global, ancient yet contemporary, wonderful, hopeful book. Yeah, 
if you if you need to or want to, there is an audio and um, it is available on independent bookstore websites like my own for downloading. And she reads it herself. And that would be a great bedtime story to just kind of listen to her wonderful voice comforting you every night. <laughs> I have just ordered a couple of copies of this book from my local indie bookstore. And so can you tell customers, please, how they can find you and order books from your website if they're unable to get in? And your website is left-bank.com. Well, right up at the top of the homepage should be the um, find book bar. You can type anything you want in there. You can type uh, further, if you want, I think there's a fine, you know, you can upfront refine that to find an audio book or find an ebook. But if you type braiding sweetgrass in, what should come up is all versions of it that are available. It just will walk you through to the checkout process. And you also sell used books, which is handy too. And those are on our website now, which I'm, I'm glad to say. So, <laughs> yeah. And I'll make sure to put links to everything we've discussed today in the show notes. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to be on the show. And thanks to you and your booksellers for all you do to make the world a better place. Thank you. Um, thanks for giving a platform for booksellers to talk to their communities. It's really appreciated. If you're enjoying the Bookshop Podcast, and I sure hope you are, here are a few ways you can support the ongoing episodes. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review, and share the link with family and friends and on social media. You can also support me by going to thebookshoppodcast.buzzsprout.com, click on the small orange heart at the top right-hand corner of the page, and donate using PayPal. Thanks in advance. Now, on with the second half of the show. Joy Lessendorfer is the author of Right Back Where We Started From, a multi-generational work of fiction that explores the lust for ambition that entered into the American consciousness during the gold rush and how it affected our nation's idea of success, failure, and the pursuit of happiness. Joy's nonfiction work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Poetry Foundation, Plowshares, NPR, Smithsonian, and Raritan. And her fiction has appeared in Tin House, The Guardian, Hotel America, Alaskan Quarterly Review, and many others. Hi, Joy, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's lovely to have you here. Let's begin with a synopsis of your book, Right Back Where We Started From. Okay, so Right Back Where We Started From is uh, literary historical fiction, um, and it covers about 100 years of history. It starts in the California Gold Rush, and it ends in World War II San Francisco. And it follows a woman named Sandra Sanborn, who believes that she is destined for success and wealth and fame, uh, and she believes this because her mother, Mabel, has always told her all these stories about their family and how their family was very prominent and wealthy and that they lost their fortune. And so Sandra believes it's her job to get back the fortune. Um, but uh, then these unfortunate family secrets start popping up. 
uh, in the form of a letter uh, that sort of suggests that how she sees herself and her family is not what she thinks it is. And so she just sort of runs away from that and runs away from the truth. So as she's continuing to try to, to be successful, the book then starts telling you the real story of her family and who they really are. I enjoy the idea of inherited secrets, whether they be good or disruptive. They're a part of who we are. Mm -hmm. And this idea is relatable to everyone. That's great. That's great. Let's talk about the novel's themes of ambition, how the California gold rush affected the way Americans see ambition today. Yeah. So, you know, we we've always had like the Protestant work ethic and this idea of Um, manifest destiny. Well, we haven't always had manifest destiny, but we've had, that's older. But what happened with the gold rush is when people came out to California in 1848 and so on, it changed our idea of how wealth can be accumulated. So before the gold rush, people thought wealth should be accumulated slowly over generations and that slowly over time you will prosper in America. And with the gold rush came this idea that you can go somewhere, work really hard for a couple of months and become fabulously wealthy. And that completely changed how we saw ambition and success in this country. And over time that has morphed into the idea of the American dream, which is this idea that you can, if you work really hard and you apply your individual uh, specialness to your goals, you can achieve anything and you can have all your dreams come true and become Oprah or Elon Musk or whatever it is. And so that's sort of, that's a direct line from the gold rush and, and comes from that part of history. And I wonder if that's where the American idea of materialism stems from the need to have, you know, the latest pair of trendy shoes, best car, best education, all of this stems from Yeah, I think so. I think that there's a direct line between sort of this sense that you can get whatever you want and you can make your dreams come true and they can be as large as you want. And that there's a, and where does that go? It ends up going into the big house and the big car and, you know, doing better than this family over here and and being envied. Um, And so, yeah, the, the book is really questioning a lot of that. I'm looking at, you know, when is ambition helpful because it is helpful uh and when is it kind of a poisonous thing that can if you if you just sort of blindly work all the time and and are um pursuing goals like can that lead to a kind of emptiness and can it also hurt other things like your relationships and your sense of community and so yeah i think that it can be it can be a really good thing to be ambition ambitious but it can also be really damaging so and and just end up being greed really you know, when you get down to it. And sadly, with the previous administration, I think we saw that kind of thinking of greed and wanting to have stuff (laughs) seem to escalate, which is just so sad, because whenever that happens, it is like a domino effect, and it ends up hurting our planet regarding climate change. I mean, everything seems to boil back down to that. But it it destroys our way of thinking about helping others and ends up making the divide between the rich, the wealthy, and the poor and people struggling every day, month to month, just to make payments. It just seems to widen that gap. 
Yeah, the wealth distribution is is crazy. Um, and, and really, a lot of it gets down to, like, there's these billionaires that are hoarding wealth, and it's just making less wealth for everybody else. And, um, you know, I think during the pandemic, all the, I forget how many billionaires are, there's like 100 or something, they all got, like, a lot richer, like 39% richer, because there's such a fleecing going on. Um, and I do think one of the ways to start working on that problem is for us all to question these attitudes that allow this to thrive in our midst and be like, well, I might be like Elon Musk or I, I'm not, not to pick on him or Bill Gates or whatever. Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah. So Jeff Bezos is a really good example. Yeah. And so I might be like him. So I don't want to do anything that will hurt hurt him, make him pay taxes. It's so silly because you're never going to be Jeff Bezos. So why don't you want him to pay taxes? I don't understand. <laughs> and it doesn't help that as a society, we're bombarded hourly with statistics regarding who or what ranks higher in certain areas. It's just insane. And you can see these statistics changing every few minutes particularly on a platform such as Amazon. It just drives me crazy. Me too. And there's also the convenience of Amazon. You know, I mean, it's tempting to just be like, it comes to my house. It's a tough one. Like they are, they really have, uh, they have us all by the throat at this point. Like they're, they're expanding. They're, they're, you know, they're into food. They're into, you know, they're into, they're developing their own mail system. It's just, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're a little out of control. So yeah. Yes, they are. But let's talk about something we both love. And that's the craft of writing. And I'd like to begin with two of your quotes. Firstly, writing a book takes time and is a skill to be learned. And the next quote is, some experiences in life can only be had by doing them. So can you share with us how these two quotes relate to you the story and the story of the book coming to life. Yeah. So um, I think that, you know, for me anyway, I can't speak for other writers, but I, I do think that writing a book is something you kind of have to muddle through um, because you can learn the craft of writing, uh, you know, and practice writing and, and, and there is a craft element, but when you're writing a book, you're essentially making something new that hasn't existed before. It's a work of art hopefully, hopefully it hasn't existed before. And so you're, you're teaching yourself how to make this work of art, like any other artist. And the first time you're doing it, there's a lot to learn. Like you're learning on one level, how to craft a book, how to pace a chapter, how to develop a character, how to, you know, keep the reader's interest, but you're also learning your own brain and your own creative process you know, what works for you, how you think, um, how to get yourself to solve problems. And then then on top of that, you're learning the book, like you're learning the internal story, the logic, what you're really trying to say, who your characters really are. And it, it is something that I don't think you can really learn any other way. It's like any other sensory experience you have in your body. You know, you can read about, I mean, this is this might be a bit of a cheesy analogy, but you can learn about going to France as much as you want, but you have to actually go to France to experience France. And I feel like writing a novel is like that. And, and it is painful for everybody to do that. And I think that it's comforting to me 
to know that that's normal and it's normal to be uncomfortable and not know what what's happening with your story and and to struggle because it is just it takes time and patience and it's something you just kind of have to muddle through so yeah, I completely agree. And muddling through seems like a great segue into your story from finished manuscript to agent to publishing deal. And I think another one of your quotes reflects this experience perfectly. Quote, embrace the fact that as a writer, you have no control over what happens to your work. And of course, the flip side to that comment is what can you control? So let's hear your publishing story because it's quite a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it is. It is. It was. uh, Yeah. So I wrote this in the aughts. Like, I I think it took eight years. Um, So I was very I was in my 20s, my early 20s when I when I wrote it. And I finished it in 2012. And so then I got an agent like you do. And they started submitting the book to publishers. Um, and you know, at first it went really well. Um, you know, I got a lot of positive rejections, which is a good sign. And, um, and then what happened was, um, my character at the time, now she's named Sandra, but at the time she was named Sandy and two things happened right after one, right after the other, which was, um, a horrible, tragedies and bad luck, which was um, Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting happened and Hurricane Sandy happened. And they happened, Sandy, Hurricane Sandy first and then Sandy Hook Elementary School. And of course, terrible tragedies and just completely shook the nation. Um, and here I was trying to submit this book with a character named Sandy who does not do good things and is kind of, you know, she's, she's, she does bad things. And they were already concerned about whether she was likable. This is a huge issue for this book. Like how likable are, are these female characters? And so all of a sudden these very bad, sad things happened and publishers just, it just, depressed them, I think. And they were like, they were like, this book is nihilistic. I can't see people reading this. It is too sad. You know, and I, and it really was, I think, bad luck because it just reminded them of these other things. And, you know, so, and then right after that, my agent quit the business and left my book stranded in email boxes all over New York City. And so that was kind of that, like, I couldn't get it out of those email boxes. Um, I tried to get another agent but I was at that point pretty discouraged. And so I moved on. Like I, I went on and wrote other things and for I think six years or something. And, um, and I was obviously really sad about that. Like it was a big, it was a big deal. Um, but what ended up happening was six years later, um, my current agent, Susan Velasquez with uh, Jabberwocky Literary Agency, contacted me out of the blue and was like, is right back where we started from still available? And I was like, how do you even know about this book? You know, I haven't, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't done anything with it for six years. And she said, oh, I read it back in 2012 when you were sending it out to agents. I was, she, at the time she was an assistant and she read the book and loved it and recommended they take me on as a client. And um, they, they, passed and didn't take me on. And so she kept my query letter, my pitch letter saying the story and everything and my contact information. And so when she became an agent, she 
sought me out and asked me if she could uh, could represent the book and if, if it was available and it was it was available and so she was able to sell it so that is why it just now came out even though I finished it nine years ago it's an incredible story but you know I do have a question from a writer's perspective and that is when you got that call did you go through the manuscript again or did you just say here take it I never want to see it again <laughs> Oh, gosh. Well, I didn't want to look at it again, to be honest, because, I mean, bad memories and associations. But, uh, yeah, that was I was um, hesitant because I had obviously become a better writer in the in in the six years. Um, but when I looked at it, you know, we did go through it and we spruced it up and fixed some things about it. And um, but, you know, actually, I had worked really hard on it. And this is why I think the key to writing is to really just do your your best work all the time, um, which is, again, getting to that idea of what you can control because you can't control, you know, uh, hurricanes and bad luck and, and publishing whims. What you can control as a writer is what you write and whether you put it out in the world or not. And so by writing, you know, at the time, what the best I could do, looking at it six years later, it was not that painful of an endeavor as it could have been. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, we did, we did fix it up and we, you know, went through it and, and spruced it up, but it, but it wasn't, it was in better shape than I, than I was dread. I was scared. I was very scared going into it. So, and now I feel pretty proud of it, you know, so. Well, it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Thank you. Thank you. When you and I were emailing back and forth, you mentioned your personal distrust of and attraction to ambition and imposter syndrome. So let's have this conversation. Well, and, and it's, you know, it's getting back to what I was alluding to before, which is, this, you know, ambition is sort of a two-edged sword in a way. Like it, it, you know, you need it, especially as a writer, you need ambition and you need that ego, you know, that thing inside of you that says, I have a story that's worth reading and I can take people's time up and have them sit and read my story and listen to my voice. Like that, that's really important as a writer. Um, but when I was younger, especially when I was working through this book, um, you know, there was two parts of it that bothered me. One was just like the possibility, the fear of failure, which of course did end up happening. So I did have to go through the failure. But I, you know, books fail. And I was really interested in this idea of failed endeavors, like when you go to the gold rush, but you don't make any money, which was the case for many miners, um, or you try to become an actor, or an artist, and it, it fails, like you don't do it. Um, like, what do, what do you do with that? What does that do with you? So that's part of what Sandra is dealing with in this book is just sort of failure. Um, but, but for me as a writer, um, you know, that ego part of writing, my distrust of it was, okay, I need that. I, that's, that's what's driving me. But also I don't want to, to only be a writer for ego. I don't want to be wrapped up in some idea of becoming famous or my work living on and becoming Shakespeare, you know, like these huge sort of ways writing is presented when you're young, especially. So when I was younger, that was a, a struggle is what do you do with that? Like, how do you reconcile those two things in a way that felt honorable and was, you know, a healthy way to approach writing where it doesn't become your identity and it doesn't become um, everything that you are, but it's also important. Like, how do you balance that? 
Um, and so that was a lot of what I was doing. And then, yeah, imposter syndrome comes into that too, because when you have success, there's this other part of it. It's like, oh, golly, me, you know? And so that's been hard for me with this, with all the n- nice things people say. And, you know, it's it's a weird, it's it's like learning how to mentally deal with that is, is actually more complex than I think people realize, you know? Yeah, it's a strange part of our psyche to think that we have so much difficulty taking a compliment. And it's not just in the creative field or in the arts. This is across the board. I mean, I have friends who are doctors and lawyers and nurses, teachers, many of whom suffer from imposter syndrome. Yeah. And then also you really want those comments and you dream for the good review. And then, and then when you get it, you're like, who me? Like, it's, it's weird. It's, it's a, a strange, uncomfortable place. I mean, for me, I felt I've come to just have confidence in my voice as a writer and to know that I do have things to say and that, and that's all I can really do as a writer is, is put that voice out there and hone it as best I can. Um, And I think, you know, that helps because when you feel confident in your voice, when people compliment it, you you know, that, that, that there's merit in that because you've tried, you know, you've worked at, you've worked at that and you feel proud of your, your work, you know. And when I look at your portfolio of where your work has been published, it's impressive. Thank you very much. And I'm interested in how you balance your nonfiction and journalism writing with your fiction writing. And how do you look after your well-being as a writer, your physical and emotional well-being? Because you're also a mom too, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a struggle. Um I think part of my problem is that I can, I do love both. I love nonfiction and I love fiction. And I'm often torn about which kind of project to pursue. Um, You know, they both have good and bad sides to them. Um, There's a lot more immediate, uh, immediate gratification in writing an article and getting it in the New York times or something um, than working for a long, long time on a, on a novel uh, that can take years to develop, right? So I, I'm always sort of struggling about, about that, like, because, uh, like, in the end, what I would like to be is a, is a you know, mostly a novelist, but I, I do want to keep doing the nonfiction. So even telling you this, I'm like, well, but I like both, but I like both. And balancing both is, is hard. Um, so, yeah, but, um, you know, I do find the good side of it is um, they do feed into each other as well. So, you know, I'll be writing a nonfiction piece and I'll, you know, I write a lot of about, uh, I write a lot about history um, and I will find something that will resonate as a story or an image or a metaphor that I then put into fiction or vice versa, where I'll be writing fiction. And and like an example was I I wrote um, a short story about, a tuberculosis colony that was in Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Um, and I was writing a short story about that. And I kept coming across this um, enslaved man named Stephen Bishop. And uh, he was really the person who mapped that cave. He was like an incredibly brave uh, elite caver, essentially, back before they had anything like that. And um, I didn't want to put him in the story because I, you know, I'm a white woman. I really shouldn't be like, writing about like fictionalizing enslaved men. But but I ended up writing an, an article about him for the Smithsonian because, you know, he just was, I just admired him so much. 
So I do find they, they feed into each other and there's a nice synergy between them. But um, yeah, it can be it can be really a struggle, honestly, to, to balance the two because I want to do both. And time management is always, always the number one problem. <laughs> so. And how do you look after yourself? Do you have a workout program, a meditation program? How do I look after myself? I, I've started to do that. <laughs> I do. I do. I, uh, 10 minutes a day is all I will do. But if I will do it for 10 minutes consistently, I figure that's better than working out for an hour and <laughs> then not, not doing it. for. So I will do 10 minutes a day. <laughs> it's like the bare minimum but I I do have a pretty balanced life like I don't work in the evenings I my family is important um I you know I I try to have a day of rest I don't always do it but I try to have a day of rest because you do need especially as a creative person you need to like recharge and you need to go out and find things to inspire you so I will go on hikes or go, you know, spend, t- spend time with my best friend. You know, we live in wine country, go wine tasting, you know, things like that, you know, have fun and spend time with my family. So I, I think overall, you know, that, that when I don't have that day of rest, I'll notice differences in my body. Like I'll notice my arms will start to get sore from typing too much. And I'll just have this like worn out feeling that wouldn't be there if I take that one day off. So I try to do that and I don't always, I don't always do it, but it's, it's ideal. And you mentioned friends. I think having a friend who you can call a really good friend uh, just to kind of banter on with for a while is one of the most important things we can have in our lives. It is. Yeah. And I'd love to hear about what's the story, what it is and where listeners can tune into it, please. It's 95.9 FM, The Crush. Um, yeah, you know, so What's the Story is a, is a radio show that I do every Tuesday uh, in the morning here in Sonoma County, and I uh, recommend a different book every week. Um, and then it is made into a podcast uh, that you can access online. Um, and the Sonoma County Library also sponsors it, so they um, will also feature the book on their website and they have, uh, they match it with uh, recommendations of similar books. So, so it's a really cool thing. And honestly, it just kind of fell into my lap. Um, this, uh, this other writer that I know, um, Elizabeth Stark, uh, she wrote a a book called Shy Girl. Um, and she's a wonderful, uh, part of the Sonoma County literary community. And she didn't have time to do it. It was offered to her, uh, and so she suggested me. And um, then the producer, uh, I talked to the producers at the radio station and they just let me give it a try. And so it seems to be working out. Um, I've done it for about nine months now um, and just a different book every week. Yeah. So it's it's been really fun. And I'll make sure to put the link to What's the Story in the show notes now, is there an article you've written that has completely exhausted you? And the opposite, is there one that has truly fulfilled you? Let's see. So I, I definitely have ones that just keep going in terms of there's just more and more and more story to it. Like I should really write a book about, uh, about the, the one I wrote for the Poetry Foundation, which is about uh, George Sterling who um, was a poet in San Francisco uh, around the turn of the century. 
And he ended up going to Carmel, uh, Carmel, California. And he started an artist colony right after the 1906 earthquake. And the reason Carmel is still to this day kind of known as an artist compound, like a wealthy artist compound, is because of George Sterling. And the thing is, that story got very, very dark. Um, he, there's a lot of suicide in the story. There was, I don't know, this has been called into question recently, but there, there at the time when I wrote it, uh, there was lots of evidence that they had a, a suicide pact. So it, it was this really amazing story in sense of all these big writers were there, like Jack London and, and Upton Sinclair and Sinclair Lewis and, um, you know, Edna St. Vincent Belay visited and D.H. Lawrence visited. So it was this, and there was all these major California artists as well, like the Impressionist artists. And so they were all down there and they were living together and they were having like th- these cool pagan rituals and they were living in tree houses. And it was just like, it was really fun and idyllic and almost like hippies. It was like the precursor to hippies. Um, and then there was also this like unfortunate uh, darkness that descended. So I would say that story was both things where it was really hard to write about this mental, these mental illnesses and what was happening and trying to figure that out and how to navigate that in a way that was respectful and, and, you know, not too triggering for people. Um, but also it was such, it's so fascinating. Like I, I just found out this whole other story that I'm going to write another essay about, about a, a poisoned marshmallow, um, and, and a murder mystery that happened down there. So it just keeps going. Um, and it's, it's really exciting and fun, but it's also really sad. <laughs> so it's both. That's fascinating. And if you can send me the link to that story, I would love to put it in the show notes. Okay, yeah, I'll send that to you. And Jack London is one of my top five favorite writers. In fact, I love reading the letters he wrote to his daughter. They are like reading poetry. He was such a wonderful writer. He, he was. What I find him really inspirational because he spent, he was, he did so much in 40 years, like he died at 40. And I just, I love people like that. I love people that just jam as much light, even though that's kind of also why he died so young, because he sort of burned himself out. But at the same time, just like, wow, you really, you really lived your life, you know? Yeah. He sure did. Now, Joy, what is one book? apart from your own, which everybody needs to run out and buy and read, you'd like to see more people reading? You know, it is a tough question because everybody responds differently to books. So I knew you were going to ask me this, and I was like, well, one one book I would say is, is especially right now with what we're going through in this nation, is, uh, is Beloved by Toni Morrison. You know, I, I read that book when I was 18, um, and I was really too young to understand it. I mean, I understood what was happening, but just in case someone hasn't read Beloved, it's a, it's a story about um, slavery and the aftermath of slavery, and it's about a woman who was enslaved and escapes from slavery, and she's being haunted by her, her dead child. Um, and, so, and there's like a ghost of her dead child. And so I read it when I was 18. I didn't really understand it. And because it wasn't a mother, didn't know much, you know, I was 18. Um, and so I re- reread it last year. And um, I didn't even, I don't know what this says about me, but I didn't even think, oh, George Floyd and, and racial reckoning. I just was like, oh, I should reread that book. And I don't, it was subconscious or unconscious. And it was just, I was just blown away. It is so good. I honestly don't know another book 
that takes on the emotional costs of, of slavery um, and the long lasting effect of white supremacy better than beloved. It, it just, it really gets into the emotional devastation. And I think that that is something that is really important um, for people to, especially in this case, for a woman, for a, an enslaved woman and, and her, you know, her lifestyle or her life and, and what she experienced. So it's just, it's just brilliant and um, gorgeously written and, and very tragic. So I, that's what I would, that's what I would pick. Joy, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. I know you're a very busy lady, but it's been fun. And I wish you all the best of luck with your book, Right Back Where We Started From. Oh, well, thank you. This has been great. I've never been on a a podcast before, so I'm excited. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mandy Jackson Beverly. And go to my website at mandyjacksonbeverly.com, sign up for the newsletter, or contact me directly at mandy at cricketpublishing.org. Read global, buy local, support your local indie bookshop.